Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. For this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Emmy Tsang, Innovation Community Manager at eLife Sciences. Sharing scientific results and discoveries is an important part of our work. And yet, the way we communicate science, mainly through published research articles, has barely changed for a very long time. In my discussion with Emmy, we explore ways how modern technologies can help to make this process faster, fairer and better. Hi, Emmy, and I'm so excited to have you at RSE Stories today. Emmy, why don't you give us a bit of a background? Sure. Thanks, Peter. I'm very happy and excited to be interviewed on this, as part of this podcast. Uh, so my name is Emmy. I'm the Innovation Community Manager at eLife. eLife Sciences is a nonprofit organization. We are probably best known for publishing a fully online Uh, open access only journal in the fields of life sciences, so anything from neuroscience to immunology. But actually, we're much more than a journal. We do a lot of work in terms of bringing a community of researchers, in particular early career researchers, together, as well as on the innovation side of things. So we think that there's a lot of room for us, as well as other folks in the community, to come in and improve the way that research is communicated using the technology that we have nowadays. This is what I'm referring to when I'm talking about innovation, exploring you know, the different web technologies that can help us communicate research better than beyond a single PDF file. So how did you end up at the Life Sciences? Myself, I was a PhD student in neuroscience. I finished about two years ago. Previously, yeah, I was a, I was doing wet lab uh, mouse behavioral research at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Rome. But halfway through, I think what hit me was the sort of focus on publishing. So somehow mm. you learn in the middle of your PhD or even at the very beginning that you have to publish. And that isn't as simple as you know, just sharing your results with the world, but rather a complicated process, often extremely long of, you know, submitting to journals, considering which journals to submit to, mm-hmm. writing that story of your research and, and putting all that data together. Finally, at some point, maybe in sort of five, six years down the line, after you finish the PhD, you may get to share this work that you've done. And so for me, that is incredulous. (laughs) And so I began to look into, you know, why it takes so long to publish a paper and whether there are faster and sort of more open ways of doing these kind of things. And so that's how I got pulled into the open science community, which is a fantastic community of people, very, very passionate, really trying Mm. to think outside of the box, go, let's say, against the current culture of publish or perish. There are other geographical regions that and institutes that probably have more established open science communities. Mm. My institute had 150 people in basically suburban Italy, <laughs> much less exposed. Okay. So uh, yeah, I, I was very thankful to social media and for the people that 
gave me a lot of encouragement. So I remember I was trying to run the first preprint review journal club in my institute uh, towards the end of my PhD. And I got a lot of support from the organizers of pre-reviews. When, when I sort of was ending my PhD, there was this opportunity at eLife that came up and I decided to give it a go. <laughs> the reason why we talk about publishing today is really because the publishing field or the way we communicate science is changing or we feel that it has to change, or I think so. And I believe that you think so too. So what do you think are the current pain points in science communication and in publishing? The problem I see is that we haven't changed. We are lagging. Publishing as an industry has been lagging behind the technological progress of the research itself. So if you look at how research papers look mm. like nowadays, I always used to show this sort of visually and it's very, very striking. So 100 years ago, you would have a paper and that was the only way that they could have done it. They had to print the paper and, and send it in mail to other folks around the world who were doing similar research to communicate it. And so it had an abstract, it had an introduction, method section, results and discussion. It hasn't changed. We haven't moved on for about a hundred years now from that format. It's still mostly text. As there's, a, there's been a lot of work that's gone on with sort of the metadata side of things. So annotating that article, making mm. sure that, you know, the title and, and abstracts and, and authors and, and citations are correctly annotated on the data sense. That allows it to be searchable on the internet and indexable which is great work. But beyond that, we haven't really changed the ways that we communicate these nowadays much more advanced methods, for example. The powerful thing about code and, and software is that you could take a piece of code from someone else and run it on your, on your computer. And theoretically, you should be able to generate the same output. That somehow in publishing is still being described in the form of text. So you will see these long paragraphs of researchers describing the packages that they've used, which is not a format that is, that is machine readable, which is very, very strange. Mm. And so this is one of the problems. There are many other problems regarding when I, you know, when I said previously that you should be able to take a piece of code and run it on your computer. And obviously that's not true. <laughs> You know, there are ways that folks in this research software fields like this, the SSI, for example, who have been doing phenomenal work on trying to improve the ways that software could be shared to produce more reproducible research, to allow folks to collaborate more easily on, on working on, on research software, to make sure that they're properly cited, etc. But these things so far have not been reflected in publishing, in the mainstream publishing, I should say. There are, there are some sort of newer, more innovative journals that have been doing better, <laughs> um, but, but it is difficult. One of the main bottlenecks in terms of the publishing industry trying to catch up with all these developments is the fact that a lot of these tools built around publishing are not equipped for that. And so there needs to be, you know, a strong motivation and a lot of effort put into trying to make those tools within the publishing pipeline work around these newer innovations and also just an understanding and a dialogue between the two different communities to try and move this forward. 
I think that's a very nice summary, Emmy. And it's, it never ceases to amaze me how little actually has changed. But the research itself has changed, and it has changed quite a lot and the way we communicate. So there is a disconnect between what the traditional print media, who now kind of moved into the digital space, do and how research is actually happening. That is one dimension. The other dimension that I can see is that the sheer amount of research that is happening, not only in life sciences, makes uh, the kind of traditional publishing model quite difficult because how do you keep track of all the research that is being published? And how do you keep track of which ones are actually the important ones? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very complicated uh, question. Fortunately, there's a lot of innovation around that area as well. There are many folks that are working on either closed or open solutions towards better research discovery. You know, we can now type any keyword into Google um, and you can generate mm -hmm. a list of results. The problem with that is that a lot of us see working in sort of open infrastructure towards research is that a lot of those algorithms are black box algorithms because mm -hmm. they're not open source. The ranking of those results that show up on your browser, you have no idea how that became. And so that causes a huge amount of problem in terms of what research gets highlighted and gain more visibility. Exactly. And so there are two problems that I separately see here. One is that, as you mentioned, there's a huge volume of research. How do researchers actually find the relevant research? Is there a way to build something that could help us search for something that we actually want to find? So that's mm -hmm. one part of the problem. And the other part of the problem it's a ranked list, the best way to visualize search results. This is one thing. Search engines algorithms are pretty much based on, one of the things that it's based on is how many people actually click that, that particular result while they search for that term, right? And so it means that some research coming from, let's say, less popular sources would then automatically not ever get featured on the first page of your Google ranked list. While it could be a totally useful, valid piece of research for researchers to read. How, at least for me, the first step is to make these ranking algorithms open so you know what the caveats are when you look at such a ranked list, how they prioritize things mm. on that list. It's a combined problem of how do you get those couple of papers that you most need and make sure that they are actually the things that you most want to read as opposed to just things that the search engine really wants to show you. That brings me to the question of what kind of innovations do you have in mind? How, how do you think we can move forward from this current state of affairs? Reproducible code and software is not impossible nowadays. Um, there's been a lot of innovation to improve the ways that code is shared. Code can be discovered. Going beyond the code itself, but sharing the actual environment where the, the, the software has been you know, either written or executed by, and used by the, by the original researcher. Things that I would point out in this area are, for example, the sharing of Docker images, which allows you to capture not only the code that was run, but also the system parameters used when the, when the code was, was used by the researcher. The main problem with Docker is that it 
for an average scientist without any training in software or computational science, it's extremely difficult to write a Docker image from scratch. One thing that at eLife we really value and, and emphasize on is that you know, tools that sh are developed should be user-friendly. User-friendliness depends hugely on who the users are. Projects like uh, the folks at Binder, for example, has done an incredible job at allowing researchers to use to build Docker images easily from their GitHub repositories. They host these reproducible ex execution environments online so that you can access them in the browser. And so essentially, as a researcher, either sharing that reproducible execution environment or using it, you don't have to worry about the things that are going on behind the back of building that Docker image. That increases adoption by a huge amount. And that's crucial for scientists who are already busy enough with their own research, and they should be, to adopt these tools that will make their research more re reproducible. Okay, uh, you mentioned workflow, and I think that is quite an important aspect because there are, as you said, technical solutions out there, uh, Docker images. Uh, we have GitHub repositories, which you can share. And of course, sharing data is a technology we cracked a long time ago. <laughs> but what we haven't cracked is actually putting that into the workflow, how scientific results are being communicated. What do you think that eLife Sciences is doing to actually bring these two bits together? Yeah, you, you made an extremely good point there that publishing is still somehow an afterthought of after all the research has been done. The tools that we use for to generate a publisher-ready manuscript is separated from the tools that you use for your research. And that's something that we've been trying to tackle at eLife. We have, we have an ongoing project that is being uh, very actively developed. It's called the Executable Research Article, or ERA. And the, the motivation behind that project at first was to think beyond the current, the way that the paper works currently. So can we show those, that code and data that are so integral to the research workflow more clearly as part of the narrative of that paper that you publish? And so to, in order to capture these aspects of the research, you need to, we need to build tools that will allow researchers to integrate the code and data already into the flow of their work. The narrative of the manuscript should be around that code and data. So the text of that publish publication is actually comment on your code in a way, just a bit longer and describing sort of what your thought processes and what your rationales and hypotheses around that, that analysis pipeline are. And there are already tools that does this. So Jupyter, for example, Jupyter Notebooks and R Markdown are tools that researchers are now largely familiar with. There is no need for us to create something new. All we have to do is to make sure that these existing tools and formats can be interoperable with whatever tools that we create to join these tools to the publisher's tools. So that's why we've, uh, since 2017, partnered with a, an organization called Stencilla. Part of what they've done is to create this converter called Encoder, which allows the looseless conversion of formats like Jupyter and R Markdown to an XML file, which is what publishers use. This is a first step towards being able to join together the research workflows and the publishers' workflows. 
I quite like the idea of the actionable article. You know, you, you, you read something and you can actually execute and check it at the same time. Are you actually in touch with other publishers and how do you see them responding to that challenge? We've had interest from uh, a few other publishers who are interested in the work that we've been doing. Our core principle of developing error as well as all of our other innovation process is that it has to be open. All of Stencilla's work as well as our work around error is open source, so there's a GitHub repo. The reasoning behind that is so that other publishers could just take that code and build on top of it. We hope that by regularly communicating the progress that we've made on this tool stack, we can increase the adoption and also then, if eLife is capable of doing this, if the research community see the work that we've done, they should push other publishers to try and find their own solutions to this as well. So we're, in a way, we're hoping to set an example as to what could be done. What will happen to the peer review process in that environment? Hopefully, it will change it for the better. <laughs> what we've done here is a step towards allowing the code to be more easily re-executed. You can think that, you know, anyone can see that code in our error and can rerun it and can produce the same graphs. And so that allows everyone to essentially peer review the executability or reproducibility in that sense for that code. So that's the first step. The big question or the big elephant in the room here is what constitutes code review? You may have noticed that what we've done here is you know, allowing published authors to publish a re executable complement to their already peer-reviewed and accepted and published paper. Mm. So we haven't got to that point where we can allow authors to submit their Alma down Jupyter notebook in lieu of their PDF or Word version of their manuscript. Mm. That is definitely one point that we, we will try to get to. The big question there is, how does that work with the existing peer-review system where reviewers are mostly commenting on, on their subject of expertise. So if you have a COVID paper, there may be an immunologist. But what about the code? Are they, do they feel comfortable reviewing the code? It's something that eLife has been is very, very interested in driving forward with the community. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of community effort, for example, in the Force 11 community organization, in the RDA, the Research Data Alliance, the uh, research software community has been fantastic in driving forward this effort and putting everyone together in the conversation. The, one thing that's become very clear to us at eLife is that this will not come only from us. It needs to be a community effort. If I can point out one project at this point, fantastic project is called CodeCheck, Stephen Eglin and uh, Daniel Neust. What they've done is to try and prototype this code review process. They've worked with a couple of publishers like GigaScience, where they take their paper and code to see if the code was reproducible in the sense that when they run the code using what is supplied, they manage to generate the same output. It goes back to the fact that this is not going to be solved by one publisher or one organization or one research team. It needs to be a community effort. I think it's a very important point that you stress the importance of the community and the community aspect. There is a lot of effort, for instance, in terms of software citation, in terms of making software more accessible. So thank you for highlighting that. If you could see into the future, what do you think science and research communication will look like? What changes do you expect to see? Let me get this correct. It's the changes that I expect to see, not that one that I want to see. <laughs> 
let's start with the ones that you expect to see and the ones then that you want to see. Things that I expect to see, open access definitely is something that the the publishing and the research community has been working on for a long time with community efforts like Plan S. Hopefully, we will not see another paywall. (laughs) All research will be open one way or another. The other thing that I think would likely happen is a much smaller gap between research and publishing. So these, as I said before, I don't think these should be independent processes, but I think we will be seeing much more integration between these processes. And so I think I see that coming for research, where you will see folks working on research code uh, collaboratively. The folks in the Jupiter community is actively working on this, and it will be extremely powerful to be able to do that. I hope that this will go beyond code as well, although much more nuances there. So I think minimal steps would be sharing much faster from, you know, completing a four-year PhD, which may be the case now, towards sharing data code right after each experiment is published, maybe even before. So when you have a hypothesis, there are solutions like Octopus, uh, which is pushing the boundaries in this direction. And the other project is Hypergraph, which is also very similar. So it's looking at the unit of research communication and really bringing that down from an entire paper to units of that paper. So hypothesis, methods, data analysis, pipelines, all shared independently instead of having this one giant paper. And what is it that you want to see? All of those things that I just mentioned, but also one thing that I would really encourage the community to think about is how do we make research and its communication more equitable? What do you mean by that? Research happens all around the world. As we know from sort of working on open access, this the research experience is very different for folks from different parts of the world. I did my undergraduate at the University of Cambridge. I never had to worry about access to paper. The library had subscriptions to everything that you can imagine. If you are working on a PhD in Kyrgyzstan, that's a completely different story. And so I think with open access, people are hoping that would change. And indeed, projects like SciHub, for example, were started exactly because of that reason. That's only part of the problem. The problem nowadays is in well-funded institutions, you have a lot of infrastructure and support for the development of research software, you know, research software engineers like yourself. And so there's this divide where you have part of the world have more digital resources and, and knowledge. And then you have the other part of the world, which is excluded from this process, you know, may never get access to it because they don't have the resources, they don't have the training, they don't have the awareness. How can we bring these two parts closer together so that research is truly accessible and conductable by anyone in the world, wherever they are? There are loads of folks working on this. I've been yeah, incredibly just amazed by the efforts that are going around and trying to bring more visibility to research, for example, in in Africa, the African archive doing phenomenal work in uh, Latin America as well. I would really, really want to see a world where whoever wants to do and publish good research would be able to do that. I think this is such an important point you're highlighting there, Emmy. And not only because certain institutes and certain 
universities are excluded, but also we ourselves exclude ourselves from important discoveries that they would be able to make if they had access. So I think we're robbing science of an important contribution by excluding people who at the moment find it very difficult to take advantage of all the tools that we take for granted. I think we're now coming to the end of the podcast, and there are usually two questions that I ask at the end. So I think one of which you almost answered anyway, which is when you look far ahead into the future, what do you think or what do you hope you will have accomplished? So for me personally, yeah, just looking back sort of at my short career so far, I've been incredibly blessed with people who are extremely generous in sharing their knowledge and their networks and their resources. So what I hope to be able to accomplish by the end of my career is to empower more people to be in those positions where would be leaders and they would have the confidence to create change. We've been, let's say, victims of a closed publishing workflow and a research culture that's been built by very few people in power. Indeed. We should be able to increasingly take matters into our own hands as researchers and people working for research and create something that actually works for us rather than being dictated onto us. So I hope that by the end of my career, I would, I would empower and I would inspire more people to work together and to join the change towards building open infrastructures for research communication and research in general. Finally, what is it you'd like to do in your spare time? Spare time is a is a rare commodity nowadays. It is a luxury, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely. Yeah, late, lately, I think I've been very inspired by folks just sort of using their own spare time and, and voluntarily contributing to different open source projects. So I've been trying to um, be a bit more involved and to learn from, from folks working in these communities. For example, the... The Open Life Science Project is, is a fantastic initiative done by three amazing uh, community leaders trying to, to, to train life scientists um, and to empower them to uh, drive forward open science projects themselves. I'm very grateful to be part of that, and it's a beautiful community that they've built. And beyond that, um, I've recently moved to the Netherlands, so I've been spending a lot of time in <laughs> in the flatter areas of this of this country. But uh, but yeah, we're doing some hiking, and uh, now that we're all sort of online and doing virtual conferences, I think it's nice to have that sort of time to get away from the screen and to take some quiet introspective moments. Yeah, for me, that's, again, something that's constantly changing and uh, it's a learning process about myself and for myself as well. Thank you so much for your time today. I mean, that was an exciting interview. And thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that... Goodbye.